Well, Father, we've been singing of your greatness and your power. Lord, even this song that you are a shield about us means that you're a warrior, you're a defender. You are great in in strength and in might and in power. And yet, Father, at the same time, and I guess this has been running through my head for the, for the last little while because we know this is Father's Day, that, that Lord, when, when Jesus taught his disciples, when he taught us to pray, the first words he said were, Our Father in heaven. Not our judge in heaven. Not our Lord in heaven. Even though you are those things and so many more, he said, Come to God as a Father. And Lord, we praise you for that this morning, that that we can, though you are awesome and exalted and mighty and holy, and and Lord, no one, no matter how good they may be here on earth, can stand in their own strength and their own power before you, even for a moment, because of your holiness and your righteousness and your glory and your majesty, yet you call us to come to you uh, as children, knowing that, that because of Jesus and what he did, we won't be turned away, we won't be... We won't be sent running, but, but you will invite us into your presence and, and deal with us as a father, as a perfect and a holy father deals you know, with children. Father, that's the attitude we want to bring to your word this morning as we study it together, that we would be attentive, Lord, we'd be attentive sons and daughters as you speak through your spirit to our hearts. And Father, we just ask, because it's really the only thing that matters, is that you'd have your way with us here as we dig into your word. Father, we pray that our, I trust that our hearts have been stirred in worship and prayer and in scripture already. Uh, Father, we've, we've done our best to give to you, and, and now, Lord, because you invite us to, we come to receive. Not receive a preacher's sermon, but receive the word of God. Lord, because there's nowhere else to go. And so as we open your word and we study together, Father, I pray for grace to teach clearly and, and, and in humility, Father, not showing as one who's figured it all out to those who aren't there yet, Father, but as, as, as just another one of your children who needs your grace and your help as well. I guess what I'm saying, Lord, is would you as our Father also be our teacher now? That by your Spirit would you come and guide us in truth, and, and by your Spirit would you come and guard us from misunderstanding Father, by the power of your and the presence and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that you deliver us from anything that we're still hanging on to that might, that might cover up our ears, that might blind our eyes, that might harden our hearts against you, so, but the, so that for the next few minutes we might see Jesus. Father, I pray that as we look at your word, we'd see, as always, Jesus clearly this morning. That as always, we would see Jesus only this morning. And Father, regardless of our attitude and our mood and our emotions, that we'd leave in a little while rejoicing, not because we came to church and feel better because we did, but because we met with Jesus who took us into the presence of our Father. And Father, it's for your kingdom and for your glory and for your honor that we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, we'll go ahead and send the kiddos out for Children's Church. We've got some boys and girls who are five-year-olds up through our second graders. Uh, Now's their time to go uh, out and and spend some time in God's Word. And for everybody else, I want you to get a Bible if you have one nearby you. Uh, If you have the means of getting there, meet me in Acts chapter 24. As we study God's Word together, we're in Acts chapter 24. We are quickly moving toward the conclusion of the book, which means we're quickly moving toward the conclusion of, of our study of the book of Acts. Um, and, uh, and, and God just continues, of course, because it's his word to teach us and, and have things to show us 
uh, through these final few chapters. And so we want to be as attentive as ever this morning, not to what I'm going to say, not to an outline or a big idea, but to what, what God wants to say to us through his word. We're going to look at this whole chapter this morning, and despite the number of verses, it's a story that moves quickly, and we're going to look at it in parts. So find your way there. You can kind of settle in, and we'll start reading it in a moment. But to sort of set the scene for, for where I want to go this morning, just want to begin by, by offering this thought, this observation to you to sort of frame the discussion, which is simply this, that I don't understand because I'm not a, a scientific, a mechanical, or, or sort of a, that sort of person. My mind doesn't work and, and, and grasp those sort of things. So consequently, I do, not, I do not understand. I'm not someone who understands how electricity works. But like you, simply by means of observation, I see every day all around me uh, the possibility of what electricity does. And I understand something of what electricity can do, even though, again, I have no idea how it happens. For instance, just look around this single room we're seated together in this morning. Electricity is responsible. I don't know how it happens, but in some way it's responsible for the lights that are on above our heads, the fans that are spinning to keep us cool. Some of you would say cold. It's not. It's just cool. It's responsible for the, the sound system that you are hearing my voice through, that we heard the musicians and, and, the, and the singers uh, singing, leading worship through earlier. Electricity is responsible for the visuals on the screen behind me. It's even in some way somehow responsible for that Facebook notification you just got on your phone that's in your pocket and you're wondering, is now the right time to check it? Electricity is responsible somehow, though I don't know how, for all of those things and more. It has an almost limitless number of uses. And if you think about it, you know this as well, whether you understand how it works or not, is that some of those uses are constructive. Some of those uses are very good things. But at the same time, electricity, the very same power, many of the ways in which it can be used are destructive. They're terrible things. They're, they're awful things. And in large part, not entirely, but in large part, the difference between the two, whether something like electricity is used constructively or destructively, is a matter of what it comes into contact with. The electricity, the power of electricity is the same, but what it does and what it accomplishes is often a matter of what it comes into contact with. And I say that to you this morning because the same goes for the gospel message that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead so that anyone and everyone who trusts in him can be saved. That message we have learned, if you have been following at all in this study of Acts, you have seen by now that the gospel is a message of extraordinary power. The gospel is a message truly of, of infinite, eternal power, and yet at the same time, just like electricity, what it accomplishes in any given life is largely a matter of what it comes into contact with, the condition of the heart that it comes into contact with. The attitude, the response of the life that the gospel comes into contact with. And I say that to you because that's something shown to us in the story recorded here in Acts chapter 24. Because the deal here in Acts 24 is rather simple. Last week, Paul was taken into custody, or over the, the story we looked at over the past couple of weeks. 
Under accusation by the Jews, Jewish leaders who didn't like his message, Paul was taken into custody by the Romans because they ruled the land of Judea of Israel at that time. And the reason that Paul had been taken into custody is because everywhere he went preaching this powerful gospel message, turmoil erupted around him. And it happened again in Jerusalem at Pentecost. He was just going about his business, loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus. He wasn't going around looking to cause trouble, but trouble found him just the same. He was taken into custody, and now, this morning, we find him standing before the Roman governor, a man by the name of Felix, Roman governor, most powerful Roman authority in all of that part of the world, of course, under Caesar's authority, but really under no one else's in the land of Israel. What we're going to see in this story, at least in the way we look at it this morning, is as it unfolds, there are three displays of the mighty power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three very dynamic, and at the same time, three very different displays of the mighty power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three examples of what it can do. I want to tell you what the first one is, then we'll start reading the story. The first one, it really unfolds in the first nine verses of the chapter. When we see that the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we've seen this sort of thing in the book of Acts before, is oftentimes, number one, a message that gives offense. One of the mighty displays in this chapter of the gospel's power is the power the gospel has to offend. Grab your Bible, follow along with me. Verse one, here's what God's word says. It says, after five days, we would assume that's five days after Paul was taken into custody, The high priest Ananias came down to some elders. Paul is in Caesarea. That's about 60 miles, 70 miles away from Jerusalem. He came with some Jewish elders, probably members of the the council called the Sanhedrin, with an attorney named Tertullus, who was a Roman but probably had Jewish sympathies. And they brought charges to the governor, to Governor Felix, against Paul. And after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him. He got the opening statement saying to the governor, Here's what he said, quote, Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Now stop right there. Because what I want you to know, although the text doesn't reveal it, is that Tertullus is, the, and I'm not going to make any snide remarks about et- attorneys, though I could here at this point, Because the fact of the matter is this, Tertullus the attorney's opening statement had no resemblance whatsoever to reality. What he just said to Governor Felix. Because what the the historians, the scholars, the record tells us about Felix, who just so happened to be the first, actually he was born a slave, he was the first slave ever to break free from his slavery and rise to a role of governor in the Roman Empire. I mean, this is a mighty leap that this man had taken. But in his role, look again at at Tertullus' words. We've attained much peace by your providence, reforms carried out. We are so thankful for all you've done. Well, Well, that just simply wasn't true. Because Felix, this governor over Judea of the Roman Empire, was responsible for one of the most brutal governorships the Roman Empire ever saw. He was greedy, he was immoral, he was self-absorbed, he was almost constantly smashing Jewish rebellions. He executed Jews by the hundreds, if not the thousands, by nailing them to a cross just as Jesus was crucified. Uh, The people, and the reason he was always putting down these rebellions is because the people hated him so much. They're constantly rebelling against him. He's constantly nailing them to crosses as a result of it. Once this governor Felix even ordered the assassination of the Jewish high priest because the high priest dared speak out against him. 
This is not a nice person. This is not a friendly, reform-minded leader. And it was before this governor that Tertullus, knowing this is the kind of man that he was and what he was capable of carrying out, it was to this governor that Tertullus, before him, leveled three charges, serious charges against the Apostle Paul, knowing, of course, in the back of his mind what the consequences of them could be. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest, there's dangerous language, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and so then we arrested him. Now in those verses, whether we see it at first reading or not, he actually, as I said, there are three charges that Tertullus levels against Paul. At the beginning of verse 5, he says, we found this man a real pest, a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Now, the first part of that statement is simply meant to create the impression that Paul himself was a traitor uh, because all allegiance was owed to the Roman Empire. And he's a, he's a dissenter. He's a troublemaker. And, and you know what Rome thinks, Caesar thinks about troublemakers. He's a man who has to be dealt with. As you go on a little bit further in verse 5, he says, but not only is, is Paul himself a troublemaker, but the end of verse 5, he's, secondly, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, that was a crafty statement because what he was intending to do before the governor is say, it's not just this guy you have to worry about, but he belongs to a whole group of people who are disloyal to the Roman Empire, who are rebellious against and toward Caesar and his authority and his rule. What's he trying to do? He's trying to do away with the whole Christian movement, this sect of the Nazarenes, these people who follow Jesus of Nazareth. And then in verse 6 he says, he even tried to desecrate the temple. Now that's a charge that probably meant little to Felix himself because he wasn't a Jew, but it was a huge charge for the Jewish leaders that Tertullus, this attorney, represented. Because what Rome had done is, is it had given the Jews, the Jewish uh, religious leadership, the authority. If they could prove that someone had violated the sanctity of the temple, done something in the temple that wasn't supposed to be done, the Romans said, if you can prove that charge to us, you can put such a person to death. And so they're saying, Paul, you know, listen, he's, he's, he's desecrated the temple. He's done some things in there that our law says he shouldn't do. Now, the, the story continues. It says, as the attorney continues speaking, verse 7, at the end of verse 6, we wanted to judge him according to our own law. But Lysias, the commander, that was the Roman commander who arrested Paul last week, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also, the Jewish leaders, joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. Let's cut to the chase. These guys are after one thing. The people that this attorney, Tertullus, represented, they want one thing. They don't want Paul thrown back in jail. They don't want Paul run out of town as he has been run out of so many towns prior to this. They wanted Paul dead. They wanted him dead. They wanted him dead now. They wanted the charges to stick. They wanted to know they were free to do it. And, and, and the reason we know they wanted him dead is why else would they, would they lay, would they level such consequential charges against him, knowing that if, if the governor rules in their favor, man, they're free to do whatever they want with him. 
Why would they do that unless there was something that they, about this gospel message, that they just inherently in their hearts found offensive? They're so offended by what Paul's doing, by what he's preaching. They aren't worried that he's stirring up rebellion against the Romans. They didn't like the Romans either. What they didn't like was Paul's me- but they didn't like more was Paul's message. The gospel he was preaching and 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 looking at the story, I I can't come to any other conclusion. They were so offended by Paul's message that they wanted him put to death. And and again, that brings back a question we've talked about before in the book of Acts. What is it about this gospel that's so offensive? Why is it every time it's preached, people seem to, in the book of Acts, want to kill other people as a result of it? I mean, I thought it was good news. Isn't that what gospel means? Jesus can save you from your sins. You get to go to heaven forever. What's so offensive about that? Well, again, it depends what it comes into contact with, the attitude of the heart to which that message is preached. Because the thing about the gospel, one of the things about the gospel, is not merely that it's a message that insists there's a God and he's not us. Because there's a lot of religions that say that. There's a God out there, he's not you, you answer, you owe something, you are, you're under him. Gospel takes it a couple of steps further. Yes, there's a God out there, and he is not us, but, but the God who is out there is also very different from us. The God of the Bible is holy, he is righteous, and he's altogether good. And what, what his message, what his word says about us is we are the exact opposite of that. We are unholy, we are unrighteous, we are utterly sinful. I know you're nicer than the person sitting next to you, but before God, we've all sinned and fallen short of his glory. We compare ourselves to each other, we come off looking pretty good. We compare ourselves to God, we come off looking pretty bad. And I don't know if you've noticed, people don't like being told they're bad. They're sinners. And that a God in heaven doesn't like that. In fact, he will punish them for that if it's not dealt with. It's a tough message to hear if your heart's not ready for it. If your heart's not looking for it. And while some people, many of you among them here this morning, who've heard that message respond in humility by saying, well, that explains everything. That's why I am the way I am. It's why the world's the way it is. Give me Jesus because it sounds like he's the answer. While many of us in humility have received that message, there are times, and maybe your heart was one of them for a long time, that hear it and take offense and say, this message must be, you can't tell people this. You can't preach this message. And they want it stopped. Don't think it isn't happening because it is. And it's the first display of the gospel's mighty power, the gospel's power, number one, to offend. Story continues, though. And in verse 10, takes a very decided and distinct turn in its direction. Because in the next several verses, Paul gets his turn to speak, to defend himself against the charges leveled against him, and it gives the opportunity for the second in this story great display of the gospel's mighty power, which is that while on one hand to many people it's a message that gives offense, on the other hand to those who've trusted it, to those who've turned to Jesus Christ, it's a message that secondly imparts great courage. It's a message with the, with the power to impart great courage. Now, I know impart is a word that only preachers use, and if they're smart, they only use it when they're preaching. I mean, I don't sit around the kitchen table, the dinner table, saying to my kids, boys and girls, there's some wisdom I'd like to impart to you this evening about the condition of your bedrooms, uh, about the pile of laundry on the floor, 
I don't usually use that word in casual conversation, neither do you, but it's a good word. In fact, the the dictionary definition of, of impart means to give something to someone else out of your own abundance. I have something in ample supply, and I give it to you. Furthermore, by imparting it to you, I, make you, I am making you richer if you'll receive what I have to give to you, but I make myself no poorer for sharing it. To impart means to give something to someone else out of your great supply, but you don't become poorer for giving it. They just, if they'll receive it, become richer. And the reason I say that is because as Paul, we're going to see this in just a moment, stood alone, no one representing him before Governor Felix, God most definitely imparted courage to him as he began to speak. Let's see what he said beginning in verse 10. It says, when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, the synagogues, or the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, that's a reference to the church, the followers of Christ, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets. In other words, I believe what we refer to as the Old Testament. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple. In other words, that's what I was doing when when these guys started bugging me. Verse 18, having been purified without any crowd or uproar, but there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you here today to make accusation if they should have anything against me, or else let these men themselves tell you what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Now, if that's not courage... I don't know what is. Why? Because here's Paul. His freedom is on the line. His well-being. Literally, his life is on the line. If these charges can be proven, Paul is going to die. He's standing there alone in this situation. And not only does he swiftly and just succinctly deny the charges against him, categorically, they are wrong. I'm not a troublemaker. I've started no riots. I did not desecrate or corrupt the Jewish faith or the temple in any way. He just gets that out of the way immediately. But what he does, I think probably without pausing to take a breath, is he then having denied the charges, seizes the moment to start talking to Felix about Jesus. And about this message for which he has come under accusation. Look again at verses 20 and 21. It says, let these men themselves tell you what misdeed they found. Let them get specific, governor, when I stood before the council. Other than, I'll admit I said one thing. Let me repeat myself, Paul would would be thinking here. For the resurrection of the dead, I'm on trial before you today. And it is no secret whose resurrection he was talking about. Whose was it? Jesus' resurrection. I am here because they don't like the fact that I love Jesus, I believe in Jesus, and I preach that he rose 
from the dead. And the reason that's one of the many reasons that was a courageous thing for Paul to do is because he's essentially standing before the two successors of the same two people who put Jesus on the cross in the first place. The Roman governor, Felix, successor to Pontius Pilate, down the line, and the Jewish high priest, Ananias, successor down the line from Caiaphas. It was the same two authorities who collaborated together to put Jesus to death. In other words, he's saying, your gang is responsible for it, and now I'm here to preach him once again. Knowing what you have the power to do to me, that there's no reason you can't do to me what you did to him. Someone once defined courage as, (laughs) as being the only one in the room who knows you're afraid. Everybody else thinks you're brave. You know deep down inside you're not, but but I don't think that's Paul here. Yeah, we saw him discouraged last week. Yeah, we saw him down and and, and perhaps at one of the lowest places of, of the whole life that he lived in ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet I don't think he was scared here. Look again at his opening statement in verse 10. Knowing that for many years you've been a judge to this nation and knowing what kind of judge you've been, I cheerfully make my defense to you. I looked up cheerfully in the Greek dictionary. You know what it means? cheerfully. I'm happy to be here and defend myself and my faith. I believe only the gospel of Jesus Christ can give someone that kind of courage. And you know what else I believe? According on the authority of the scripture, it has the ability to do the same thing for you and the same thing for me to give us the courage to speak up for Christ, to give us the, scur- the, the, the courage to, to speak with grace and with truth. Because I've learned, and I have never been in a situation anything approaching to what Paul faced here. Maybe some of you have. You have been in very serious, uh, maybe high-stakes situation. I've been in some low-stakes situation where I know I'm in the minority as I'm about to preach Jesus Christ. But even in those, and by observation of others, you know what I've learned? I've learned this, that there is no safer or more secure place to stand than on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it doesn't change. It doesn't change. It doesn't mean we won't be hated. It doesn't mean we won't be persecuted doesn't mean we won't perhaps someday some of us find ourselves in a situation like Paul. It just means God's still in control. And God knows what he's doing. And God will see us through. Unlike Paul, we do get scared, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is is still and always will be true. Through it, the Lord can impart courage to us. So the first great display of God's mighty gospel power is that this is a message that has the power to offend some people. Secondly, it has the the power to impart courage to others. Again, it depends on the condition of the heart it comes into contact with. And there's one more thing this passage says, and it's really where the story is going, and, and, and it's really where I believe God would have us arrive this morning, because whether we are, even as we sit here this morning, uh, many of us may be in the I'm ready for the impartation of courage crowd. There may be a few of you who are in the I'm highly offended crowd. That's okay, because this story and this gospel leads us to the same place, the third and final display of the gospel's mighty power, which is this. It is a message that demands a response. The third and really the greatest display of the gospel's power is that it is a message that every time it is shared demands that we respond. Look at verse 22. We'll read the last part of the chapter. But Felix, having a more 
exact knowledge about the way. In other words, he knew some stuff about the church and about the gospel. We don't know what, but he knew something. He says he put them off. That is, the, the people bringing the charges against Paul. You know what? We're, court's going to go into recess, saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for Paul to be kept in custody, yet have some freedom, and not prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he, Paul, was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened. And he said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul, read bribe. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Let me give you a little further biographical sketch on Felix. This is the kind of stuff that wouldn't show up on eHarmony. <laughs> Felix, it says in verse 24, arrived. He had the hearing, adjourned the hearing, and it came back a few days later with his wife, Drusilla, verse 24. Now, what you need to know about Felix and, and his personal life, we've looked at sort of him from the uh, from the, the standpoint of his role as a Roman governor. Here's a little insight on his personal life. Drusilla, verse 24, was Felix's third wife. His first wife was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. He divorced her when he met a second woman that he fell in love with. We don't know much about her, just that she was some sort of royal princess as well. Probably there was some political advantage to marrying her. So he divorced his first wife, married the second one, and while he was married to the second one, he caught sight of the stunningly beautiful Drusilla. And he decided in that moment, I'm done with wife number two. I want this woman now to marry me. There are just a couple problems with that. Number one, she was already married. She was married to a third-rate prince from the pro some province in Syria. So she, secondly, she was 16 years old. She was 14 when she married the prince from Syria. She'd been married two years. Felix sees her, says, I don't care that she's already married. I don't care that she's only 16. I am going to have her for myself. So he went and found, true story, he went and found a sorcerer from the Isle of Cyprus who somehow mediated, intervened on his behalf, pried her away from the Syrian prince and said, here she is, Felix, you can marry her now. This is the kind of man we're dealing with. It's the kind of guy he was. And so you can see why verse 25 says, <laughs> I love this, when Paul was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix got scared. <laughs> you would too. The Bible calls that conviction of sin. And that was really the more serious of his two dilemmas. He had a political dilemma here. The political dilemma was, was, number one, how can I let Paul, who I'm pretty sure is clean, these guys are making stuff up, how can I let him off the hook without offending the Jews, having another riot that rises up, they want to put down, Caesar won't like that, how do I deal with Paul? And he sort of, quote-unquote, resolved that by, in verse 23, he said, well, let's lock him back up and give him all kinds of freedom. His friends can come and go. And then in verse 27, he just decides to pass the buck. Paul stays in prison two years and Felix walks away and says, Festus sees your problem now. You deal with the Jews. That was one dilemma. The more serious dilemma was the moral, was the sin dilemma. Because I think what Felix, and I don't think we have to read anything into the text to see this, was grappling with here is the question of what do I do with this gospel message? Because what have the gospel done? 
The preaching of the gospel had unmasked him for who he really was and what he was really like and the condition of his heart. And I think what Felix was probably laying awake in his bed at night thinking is, what do I do with this? This message has unmasked me for who I really am. It's shown me and really shown anyone listening what I'm really like. And at the same time, I think it's everything that's missing in my life. And yet if I accept it, it'll cost me everything of earthly value that I cherish in my life. The indulgence and and the glory and the power and the pride that comes with being a Roman governor. Battle of heaven and earth going on in his soul. Two worlds colliding and fighting to win. And there are times when in his sovereign design, God brings you and me to similar moments. All of us have to grapple with the message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died for our sins and rose from the dead to choose whether or not to believe it and we will be saved, as well as once we have, those of us who have believed it, it's subsequent and relentless calls to holiness. Not because our salvation is at stake, but but our walk and our relationship and our witness and our light. Once I trust Jesus Christ, He brings me to further moments of holy, joyful obedience, or Aaron, you're going to go do your own thing again. You're going to walk with me. You're going to walk a different direction. This is a message that always demands we respond to it. So let me very humbly but clearly ask you a question. Does God have you at such a moment today? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior? Have you nodded your head and said, yeah, I get it, or have you opened your heart and said, I believe it? And if so, as a believer sitting here this morning, is there another step that God's calling you to take? Maybe it's a sin to confess. It's, a, it's something to repent of. Maybe it's a relationship you need to restore. Maybe it's a step of faith that he's calling you to take. I, I'm calling you to step out on the water, keeping your eyes on me. And God has you at that moment. Listen, the danger isn't simply, based on this story, the danger isn't simply that we will say no. The, the danger is, is equally dangerous that we might say, not yet. And that's what Felix kept saying here. I want to listen to Paul, but not yet, not yet. Uh, I want to hear something, but not yet. Because you know what the real danger is? The real danger is that in saying not yet, God may never bring you back to this point of decision again. That's just the truth. His same, I mean, you may live for years and years and years, but he may never bring you back to the same point of conviction that says today, will you follow me? Psalm 95 says, Hebrews repeats it three times. Pay attention when God repeats himself. He says this, If today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Respond to the gospel. Respond to Jesus. Because it is his love that has brought you to this moment God is saying, I love you so much that I want you to choose me. And this morning, simply by virtue of sitting in this room, you have been confronted with the gospel's power. Never again in your life can you say, no one ever told me, I never heard, I never saw, I didn't know. Now you know. The big idea of of the message this morning, hopefully it's self-evident by this point, the gospel's power cannot be ignored. 
It can be rejected and delayed, but it can't be ignored. Once you've heard it, you can't unhear it. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. So let's decide in this moment what we're going to do with it. Father, you're the only one who can deal with our hearts. We've been reminded this morning already that you deal with us as a father. You call us as a father to to be your children, to, to trust you as children, to stay with you as your children. Father, some of us this morning may be wrestling with big things, things we need to let go of or things that that, that at your initiative we need to embrace. Father, it's not my job to sort all that out, but it is our job, each one of us, to respond to whatever sorting and, and challenging and, and confronting you may be doing. Father, thank you that the promise of your word is that when we trust you, that when we choose you, that the promise is one of victory. Father, that it's one of joy, that, that, that while obedience sometimes there's a cost, I count the cost and I say no to this because I want to say yes to Christ but that you promise us victory, victory for obedience in the moment, victory for all of eternity, Father, because we'll have crowns to cast at your feet. Father, I pray you deal with each of us before we walk out this door in the way you desire and that we would respond in a way that gives you joy as you look on and look into the hearts of your children. We love you, Lord. Teach us to trust your love. In Jesus' name, amen.